Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another week on History Hack. It's Monday, so it's World War II Day. So Merrin is with me. Hey, Merrin. Hey, hey, hey. Oh, we've got something really good today, haven't we? We have indeed. Today we are privileged to have with us Professor Francine Hirsch, who is the Villas Distinguished Achievement Professor of History at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where she teaches modern Soviet European history. Now, some listeners may have Fran's first book, Empire of Nations, on their bookshelves, which was a prize-winning tome in its own right, looking at ethnographic knowledge and the making of the Soviet Union. But her most recent title is called Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg. And as someone who spent ages referring to a very, very old <laughs> interpretation of what happened, I can say that Fran's book has been a book well worth waiting for. Why? Because it's not only important in terms of enabling us to remember the events at the end of the Second World War more accurately, but it is also an incredibly readable book for a complex and sensitive subject. So, Fran, how would you describe the Nuremberg trials to somebody who has no idea what they were all about. Well, first of all, thank thank you so much for having <laughs> me for that really lovely introduction. I'm really psyched to be here. Um, so, so just to start at the very beginning, um, the Nuremberg trials, the International Military Tribunal or IMT, took place after World War II, um, from November 1945 to October 1946 at the Palace of Justice in occupied Germany. The United States, Great Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, the four major allied victims, tried mm-hmm. 22 Nazi leaders for conspiracy, crimes against peace, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. And they also tried six Nazi organizations, including the Gestapo and the SS. And the thing is, is that this was just the first of the Nuremberg trials. And it, as it would turn out, it would end up being the only four power one. Mm. Okay, because so I think people... Uh, they hear the word Nuremberg and they think it as, of it as one big event, but it was actually a lot more complex than that, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And you know, a lot of when a lot of times when people think of Nuremberg, they also think of the film Judgment at Nuremberg, which was one of the later Nuremberg trials, the judges' trial. And so there tends to be a way, especially in the United States, I think, in which the Nuremberg trials are sort of misremembered as this American story, and people think about the U.S. Chief Prosecutor and um, and the associate, um, the Supreme Court Associate Justice Robert H. Jackson, really as the force behind the whole thing, right? You know, the British and the French are talked about in like popular books and films as having kind of supporting roles, 
Uh, but the Soviets, right? When the Soviets are talked about at all, it's they're they're crude, they're vengeful. Um, and to to quote um, one of the U.S. assistant prosecutors, Thomas Dodd, he describes them as the Achilles' heel of the whole process. So there's not really much talk then about the contribution and the very significant contribution that the Soviets made, and that's part of where my book comes in. One of the things that it seeks to do is to bring the Soviets back into the story. But it's more than that, because when you bring the Soviets back into the story, that also opens things up in a, in a, in a really nice way to be able to look um, also at the relationships among the four countries of the prosecution as well. This is a new lens through which to understand what happened. Yeah, the, 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 the whole idea of the book is to, um, I did a lot of research in the Soviet archives, but also some research in other archives and read memoirs and other materials. And so, so it's about the Soviet role in the trials in part, but it's really, um, it's really a new take on the, on the IMT, the, the first of the Nuremberg trials, right, as a whole. And then also looking at the consequences of that trial and what happens later. So you're 22 Nazi leaders. Um, we don't need to go through them all, but, who were the big ones um, and how did they choose which Nazis they were going to try and get for this trial? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, so when, in terms of thinking about the 22 Nazi leaders, it was, they were, they were high ranking leaders for the most part, right? Some of them were close members of Hitler's kind of inner circle, people like Hermann Goering, Rudolf Hess, foreign minister, Johann von Ribbentrop, military leaders like um, Keitel, Jodl, Raider, propagandists like Rosenberg, Stryker, Fritzsche, um, the Reichsbank president, Schacht. So the, the part of the whole idea was to have these key Nazi leaders that would then open the door also to future trials. That if you showed that the military, right, was complicit, and that's also, they're also trying the organizations. And so these are leaders who also had major roles in these organizations. And so this was the, the trial of the major war criminals, and the idea was there had already there were already national trials going on, and the idea was that these national trials would continue, but that this would sort of be the big one that would really show like what had happened, um, that would really create a record for posterity, and that would then be the the beginning, right? It's not the Nuremberg trials weren't supposed to be the end. It was supposed to be then the beginning of a whole process of of, of coming to terms with the past and a whole process of future trials. So they're, so they're setting precedents for the future. That must have entailed a lot of preparation. In, in particular, your book focuses on the Soviets. So do you want us to tell us how they prepared for the trial? Sure. Well, I think there's, there's two things to think about here. Um, for, so first of all, one of the big arguments that I make in the book is that one of the major ways that I think we need to understand the Soviet role is that it was the Soviets who were really out in front, really during the darkest days of the war, when other people weren't thinking about these major war crime tribunals yet, the Soviets were. So they were already starting to think about it, in part because of the brutality of the Nazi occupation. And so um, really in April 1942, so early on, the Soviets start really thinking about this question of, of some kind of a tribunal or a trial. They're thinking about reparations. Um, law professors at the Soviet Union's Institute of Law, they're told to study this question of reparations and the international law perspective on it. So they're already doing lots of thinking and writing. It's October 1942 that the Soviet foreign minister, Molotov, that he um, he comes out and makes a public statement inviting all interested governments to cooperate in bringing Hitler, Hess, Goering, and other Nazi leaders to justice. And the thing is, this is, again, this is in the war. 
And um, the United States and Britain, they're really not interested in a big tribunal of the kind that the Soviets are thinking of at this point. The U.S. government's worried about reprisals, right, against um, allied prisoners of war. The British are saying, well, the crimes of the Nazi leaders are far too serious for a trial. And so at this point, the Soviets really start to go down their own path. They set up the Extraordinary State Commission, which is called, um, which is their own war crimes commission, to investigate German atrocities and war crimes in the Soviet Union and start to put together their own record. And they actually don't participate in the United Nations War Crimes Commission, the UNWCC, that starts to meet in London from October 1943. And that's not, they're not talking about a big tribunal at the UNWCC. So that's part of it. Now, um, even then, as the Soviets are going down their own course, um, on their own course with this, um, the Soviet law professor, Aaron Trainin, he's the one who comes up with I, this idea that becomes one of the three counts of crimes against peace. And okay. so the idea of crimes against peace is something that he brings to the table. He also makes arguments that there should not be a charge of, um, of superior orders, of the bank superior orders, that that's ridiculous. He also argues, too, that the individual Nazi leaders could and should be tried for participating in a criminal conspiracy. And Trainin's ideas begin to circulate. Um, his book, The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites, becomes translated into English and many other languages, and it circulates. So this is just to say that even before there's real talk of a tribunal, the Soviets are already doing a lot of the work, even during the war, when no one else is thinking about it, just to get things in motion. Okay, so now... After the victory then, right, when the other allied powers come around to the idea of an international mm. tribunal, right, so the Soviets send Trainin to, to London to help negotiate the London Charter, and so he has a significant role there too. Um, and then once things really get going, then we can start to talk about, like, what they're doing to prepare for the trial itself, okay? Yeah. And in terms of the trial itself, they're starting to put together, like, a list of potential defendants, they're setting up, they set up two secret Nuremberg commissions to oversee the Soviet delegation and the Soviet case from Moscow. They think they're going to be able to like, to kind of keep tabs on things from afar. Stalin appoints the deputy foreign minister, Andrei Vyshinsky, to head one of these commissions. And Vyshinsky, actually, he was sort of notorious for having been the prosecutor of the Moscow trials, these Soviet show trials that were held in the 1930s. And so, so again, there are these two secret commissions, and that's a really big deal. Molotov, the prime minister, I mean, the foreign minister, rather, he heads another commission, this Politburo Commission for the Nuremberg Trials. The Soviets also get to work preparing evidence, screening potential witnesses, and also selecting personnel. Talk to us then about the specific personnel. Who is in the Soviet delegation? Okay, that's, that's also so super interesting. So yeah. again, when we think about the, the, the personnel in the Soviet Union, part of what we're thinking about is who is Stalin, right? And who is Molotov? Who are they handpicking? Who do they think should be in these particular roles and why? And so, um, so in terms of how they're thinking about the tribunal, Stalin is thinking about the tribunal. He thinks about Nazi guilt as it's a done deal. He's expecting the tribunal to tell a story about Soviet suffering and Soviet heroism, and he's expecting that each and every defendant is going to hang. And so then the chief prosecutor and the judge who are selected, um, they're both connected to the Stalinist show trials. The Soviet judge, Yoni Nikachenko, had been a judge in the Moscow trials, again, these show trials of 1936 to 1938. 
The Soviet chief prosecutor, Roman Rudenko, had been the prosecutor of a series of 1930s show trials in Ukraine. And most of the Soviet assistant prosecutors also had similar credentials, right? The assistant prosecutors are, are, are very interesting also because of this. You have someone like Lev Smirnov, who was um, selected because he had just prosecuted Soviet war crimes trials in Smolensk of members of the SS and Wehrmacht. You have Lev Shainin, who had been a special investigator in the Moscow trials and who also, by the way, wrote detective fiction. Um, you have Nikolai Zoria, who's brought onto the team somewhat late. He also worked in the prosecutor general's office in the Soviet Union. He was actually the, the head of the Department of the Supervision of the Military. And the reason that Stalin sends him there is because he knows about the secret protocols to the Soviet-German non-aggression pact of 1939. And Stalin sends him to Nuremberg with the task of keeping it out of the courtroom. Zoria ends up with a bullet in the head. So that is not a happy story. Yeah, (laughs) we're going to get into all of this. I know, I know. I mean, other members of the delegation include um, Aaron Trainin, right? He goes on there as a legal advisor. There are also diplomats and translators and interpreters, stenographers, drivers, secret police agents are a big part of the delegation. And the other group that I want to mention, because I also think they're really important and they're really significant characters in my book as well, are the correspondents, right? The Soviets sent some of their most talented writers and artists and filmmakers and photographers, people like the writers Ilya Ehrenberg and Vsevolod Vishnevsky, the photographer Yevgeny Kaldai, the filmmaker Roman Carmen, the political cartoonist Buddy Safimov, right? And some of these, these men, and actually they're, they're all men, um, some of them had traveled with the Red Army across Europe during the war, liberating occupied territories. Um, Carmen was one of the people who had filmed the Soviet liberation of some of the camps, right, in the summer of 1944. And so I think it's really significant because they bring that experience with them, right, to Nuremberg as well. Yeah. And their, their diaries and their letters and just their impressions are just really powerful sources. So, um, so, so they've, they've come to the party, as it were, with a, almost a preconceived idea of what's going to happen. They're capturing a legacy. They're intent on capturing it in a specific way. So it makes them sound like they were really well prepared. But what, what about the nitty gritty? Were they well prepared in every respect? Were there areas where they were unprepared? Translation, for example? Yeah, no, no, no. So this is, again, one of the things that comes out. Um, it's, a, it's a big theme in the book. And it's one of the great ironies, I think. It's something that I thought a lot about when I was working on it. Because, yes, on the one hand, the Soviets had been pushing for an international tribunal from early in the war, right? They were the ones who were out in front, right? Yeah. Um, these filmmakers, they had seen it all, right? The writers, they, they also, they knew, they knew about what the Nazis had done, right? And, and yet, and yet, when they get to Nuremberg, even before they're in Nuremberg, they are not incredibly... enough German speakers. Yeah, they, right. They, yeah, they're <laughs> totally unprepared. So, so you know, even in, in London, so they they all the prosecutors meet in London um, in the month before the tribunal to work on the indictment, right? Which is this big document that lays out all the charges. And there's a great source. It's this big letter sent home by the Soviet diplomat who's also acting as an informant in London. And he says, like, look, like our guys, they don't know how to hold a meeting. They don't know how to negotiate. Um, he says, and there's another problem. Uh, Rudenko, you know, chief prosecutor over there, 
he doesn't know about Soviet-German collaboration on the eve of the war. He this is the know. secrecy is a nightmare, the isn't secrecy. it? The secrecy. I mean, and so you know, Ivanov knew more because he actually had been a diplomat in, in, in Berlin um, during those years. And so he knew what Rudenko didn't know. And so this is a huge problem. And yes, and then the translators and the interpreters, they are um, completely unprepared in this way. They do not have enough German speakers um, again, in part, um, the Soviets had arrested and shot lots of German speakers during the Stalinist terror and yeah. during the war as well. So there, there are actual shortages as well as sort of a lack of comprehension of what they need and preparation. Yeah. Actually, well, but, they are, there are a shortage of the people they need. There are a shortage of people, but it's not just that. So it's more, it's, it's, there's a shortage, but there's also, there are German speakers, but in order for the Soviets, everything has to go through the security services. No one can be sent abroad without being cleared and approved. And what happens is that the NKVD, um, the Soviet security forces, they actually, the, the, the NKVD has a terrible relationship with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And, and yeah, sorry, no, go figure. That's like great. The together there, right? <laughs> I know. And so, and so, so, so the, right, there's actually super interesting correspondence in the archives where the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is aware of the problem and is trying to get German speakers cleared and the NKVD keeps saying no, uh, that, that, that we can't clear these people to go abroad. So if they had been willing to clear everyone who spoke, you know, who was a translator, then it probably would have been fine, but, but they weren't. And so, um, so, you know, they do okay with translation, but it'd be an interpretation, but this is a huge issue through the entire trial. So it sounds as though the, the translators were ill-equipped to, to sort of handle what they were walking into. But but let's walk into the into the courtroom. Tell us a little bit about the kind of evidence that was being presented at the trial. Um, did they have out you know out of the box witnesses as they called to the stand? Who, who was involved? Great. So um so right. So in terms of the Soviet evidence, let me talk about about that. And so so the Soviets um, ended up presenting powerful evidence on all four of the counts, but especially on crimes against humanity, which was the area, one of the areas they were supposed to to present on. So just to, so the case itself was divided up. The Americans were going to present on conspiracy, the British on crimes against peace, and then the French and the Soviets were going to split the war crimes and crimes against peace charge with the French presenting on Western Europe and the Soviets on Eastern Europe. As the trials went on, though, the Americans ended up taking over, presenting on everything, saying that conspiracy was actually connected to all of these other charges, right? So going in, the Soviets have different kinds of documents at the ready, including reports from their extraordinary state commission, which, remember, they had set up during the war, including reports from Polish and, and Yugoslav war crimes commissions, because they're also responsible then for presenting those cases. They have German documents that have been captured by the Red Army and by Soviet counterintelligence. Intelligence. And those kinds of documents are, are very powerful. They talk about the treatment of Soviet prisoners of war, the invasion plans, the Einsatzgruppen. There's also eyewitness depositions, right? There's also film evidence that ends up being very critical for the Soviet case as well. The filmmaker Roman Carmen, his studio back in Moscow, prepares three documentaries with footage that Soviet cameramen had shot during the war. So there's a whole film on the destruction of Soviet culture, a film on the destruction of Soviet cities, and a film also um, one that was probably very hard to watch um, on German atrocities against civilians and prisoners of war. Yeah, so, so that's right what they start with. And then um, and then so in January, right, so a couple of months in, 
Rudenko, the Soviet chief prosecutor, is back in Moscow and meeting with Stalin. And at that point, it's, it's then that they decide that the Soviets should expand their case to cover all four counts. And it's at that point that they add new evidence, um, and in part to address the Nazis have, the defendants have been saying that um, the war was preventive. And so it's, it's to, to oppose that, right? But they also decide in order to oppose that as well, to send a couple of surprise witnesses. And those are the out of the box witnesses. Hmm. And so they send, um, Eric, um, Buchenhagen, but also Friedrich Paulus. And Paulus is the really big one. Paulus is the highest ranking German official in Soviet custody. Um, he had been one of the authors of the Barbarossa plan. He had been captured in Stalingrad in July of 1943 when he had commanded the sixth German army. And so the Soviets, they secretly plan to bring him to Nuremberg and they managed to secretly do so. Only the judges know that he's going to appear and the judges know not very far ahead of time. And his appearance is an absolute sensation, right? Mm. It is a huge victory for the Soviets to be able to bring him in and present him. And Paulus, his testimony, he talks about them, the Barbarossa plan, and he says that, yes, it had the aim of the Barbarossa plan had been to conquer, colonize, and exploit the territories of the Soviet Union. He talks about how before the war, he had gone about helping to enlist um, Romania, Finland, and Hungary in a war against the Soviet Union. Again, so this pushing back against this argument of preventive war that the Nazis are making. He mm. also testifies that Goering, um, Yodel, and, 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 and Keitel are the most to blame for the war against the Soviet Union. And so this ends up being right, a, a really important moment for the trial. And yeah. every, the Soviets are so excited that everyone is talking about afterwards how they had managed to pull this off to bring Paulus as the surprise witness. You've mentioned, I know that you want to talk as well in terms of witnesses um, about a couple, but you uh, particularly want to mention uh, Yakov Grigoriev um, and Avraham, is it Sutskeva? Discover. Yeah. So part of what I wanted to say about the witnesses is that there were those kind of surprise out of the box witnesses who the Soviets had captured, right? The, the generals. But the Soviets also, um, they make a decision and they make that decision late to also bring in eyewitnesses of atrocities. And I would say that this ends up being the most effective part of the entire Soviet case, which is part of why it's really important to talk about. Um, they end up calling seven witnesses. Um, Yakov Grigoriev was, was a peasant who talked about the, the burning down of his village in Russia. And, um, and that kind of provided, that went along with evidence about the German raising of villages. Yeah. Um, and Sutskever, um, he was a Yiddish poet. And one of the things that's really significant about his testimony and some others is that he, he really testifies about what we've come to know since then as the Holocaust. And so a lot of times people, don't really talk about the Soviets or anyone really presenting that much evidence of the Holocaust at the Nuremberg trials. And, and they absolutely did. And Sutskever is, is one of the witnesses that did so. Yeah. It, it, it's not just militia against militia. It's eradication of culture and peoples as well. I think yeah. we sometimes forget that. Are there any women witnesses? Yes, yes, yes. They, 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 um, they actually, it's interesting. They bring several witnesses. Um, but I had, yeah, they only end up calling one of the women and she is actually one of the witnesses that's sent by the Polish government, um, yeah. Severnia Smagluska. And she, um, she had been in, um, Auschwitz-Birkenau and, and she, uh, her, her testimony is, is incredibly powerful, hmm. um, because she, she testifies on, on the murder of, of infants and children. And so, again, I know it's terrible. And, um, and just, um, 
again, that's, that's one of those moments too, when it's interesting to read like the coverage of the trials and then the newspaper stories after and, um, and people really said how even during her testimony, that was one of the moments when like the defendants covered their eyes and, and looked away and you don't know really what to make of it, but yeah. Uh, I just, I remember as well in the Eichmann trial, there's that moment where there's the guy that comes out who was forced to unload the trucks with bodies. And there was a day he opened the truck and the bodies were his family. Um, and that for me as well, it just, but as much as we talk about this Merrin, I know that you want to move on to the fact that they're entitled, they are really legally entitled to defend themselves in all this, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And this is something that, um, that, that some listeners will, will have heard Philip Sands talk about. Mm. Yeah. Is that there are two sides to every story. So Fran, the Germans are entitled to a defense, no matter what we think about them collectively. Goering was first. What happened? How did the Soviets react? Because they put a lot of preparation into this, haven't they? So how did they react to the defense? Yeah. So, so, so first just to, to talk a little bit about like what, again, what the Soviets are expecting. So, so yeah. the, the Nuremberg Charter, right, sets out that the trial will only talk about European access crimes. And it's not just that, but on the eve of the trials, the prosecutors at Jackson's initiative, right? So Jackson, the U.S. chief prosecutor, he gets word that the defendants are going to try to make these counterattacks against the countries of the prosecution. And he sits down and says, like, this is probably going to happen. Um, he says the United States, like, was came in late to the war and has the least to hide, pretty much, um, paraphrasing here. But, um, but he says, just like, can you write a memoranda with things that we should know about so that we can be prepared, um, to be able to deal with that in the courtroom? And so the Soviets think that this, they, they talk about this later as this gentleman's agreement that the prosecutors have worked out. And so again, they're fairly confident that, um, that there aren't going to be these kinds of counterattacks, right, in court, regardless. Okay. And so then once this happens, um, they're really taken by surprise by it. And it's not just the Soviets who are taken by surprise. Jackson is taken by surprise too. All of the prosecutors are taken by surprise by just how much leeway the judges are giving to the defendants. So are they kind of thinking it would be like a token, okay, now do you have anything to say for yourselves? Um, And then that would be that rather than an actual robust attempt to argue that um, either you're just as bad as we were or um, you provoked us or, or whatever line they went down. Yeah, and so and it's against like the Soviets are thinking, they're thinking in terms of the like the, a show trial, right? That it's going to be a confession almost, or if not a confession, it's going to, the judges are going to keep it in line. It's going to be right, concise. And the Americans are thinking, okay, there'll be a defense, again, the, the American prosecutors, but they're again thinking that the judges will keep things in line, that they're not going to let the defendants like go on for days or weeks to defend themselves and that they're not going to allow counter charges or counter attacks. So, so, but, but that's, you know, again, Gary goes first. He's the first defendant to testify. And he's from the very beginning, he starts making very provocative speeches going on and on and on. And, and the judges just let him, the prosecutors try to protest and the judges say, no, like he has to have his, his say. 
and they allow him to do so. And and part of this, uh, too, just in terms of, I was very interested in this while working on the book, like, what exactly are the judges thinking about this? What is their perspective on this? And again, remember that there's four judges. Nikachenko, the Soviet judge, is one of the judges. So in, in any of these discussions, it's always the, the Western judges voting down Nikachenko on, on how to deal with these kinds of issues. And part of it is that the Western judges, they're, they're very worried about preserving the tribunal's legitimacy. They're mm-hmm. very worried about charges of victor's justice because this has already been all over the press and in the news and discussions of victor's justice. And it's they don't want another Versailles, do they? No, they, they don't. They don't. And, um, yeah, I mean, Rebecca West, who is having an affair at the time with, um, with Francis Biddle with the U.S. judge, she writes about this and she says that, that, that they were very worried about this, that they really wanted to show that this was going to be a fair trial. And the entire prosecution thinks that it's not fair because they're just allowing them to go on to such an extent that, no, remember, the prosecution is gone, and then the defense goes next, and the prosecution, the Soviets went last, and their witness testimony was last. And they had just made this, like, incredible impression. Like, people are, they, they finally understand, as far as the Soviets, like, what this war had been about. And then there's Gehring, right, on on the stand, just going on and on and on. And Gehring, you know, he's arguing that the, the Russia, France, and Britain, like, had forced Germany to action, that the German occupation of Czechoslovakia and Norway had been preventive, that Russia had been preparing to attack Germany. And Jackson and Rudenko, in their attempts to cross-examine Gehring, they just flail. Like, Jackson, he tries to ask Gehring a whole bunch of leading questions, but Gehring is not going to be led. Gehring goes on, he speaks warmly about Hitler. He defends the concentration camps, arguing that it had been necessary to take certain groups into protective custody, right? And, and Rudenko, when it's his turn, he just is like, again, the Soviets are thinking about this, about cross-examination. They're, they're very bad at cross-examination. They're thinking about cross-examination as like a guided public confession, right? That's what it had been like in the Moscow trials. Yeah. So they don't know what to do with a belligerent defendant like Gehring. And, and, you know, Gehring meets Rudenko's questions with all kinds of counter charges, right? About, again, about this, about how the, how this Operation Barbarossa was preventive. But also he just starts listing information. Like when Rudenko asks him about forced labor, he goes on and says, well, you know, the Soviets deported one and a half million Poles and Ukrainians from Poland to the Far East. And the judges just allow him to kind of add all this information in. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So, so, so this is, this is pretty much a revelation because I, I mean, 
When we think about the Germans making these great speeches, in one way, it's really important that it happened because what's what's happened is we're set, they they set it up as a historical benchmark. There was transparency. There was an aim there to deliver transparency. And I'm guessing that the discomfort that we feel now looking back at these injustices, I mean, we, we can mitigate some of that thanks to the fact that there was this open approach to, well, you, you've got your moment, you, you've, you're here on trial, but you've got your moment, we're going to allow you to say something. And if it had been a mock trial or a sham, we would be looking very differently at the past now. Now, one of the problems we get is that um, Nuremberg per se is um, interpreted in film, on podcasts, in, in all sorts of different ways as a fait accompli, as something that's really quite well dramatised. But at the time, how was it represented in the media? And did the different media, Western media, Soviet media, report on it in different ways? The Soviet press was highly censored. And so what the Soviets were able to do for their own press is they were able to highly control the story of the trial that was told, right? And they would avoid, like, all sensationalism. That's what, again, they're being directed by the party to avoid all sensationalism. And and they're also going to make sure that the defendants don't receive a platform. And so Goering does not receive a platform in the Soviet press, right? The international press talks about Goering's personality, his health, what he's wearing. They publish all kinds of information about, about um, again, his, um, what we would think, maybe think about even his propaganda, kind of praising Hitler and all of this, right? Um they, um, one, one U.S. journalist at the time actually wrote that the Western journalists, they, they felt like obligated to give Goering his say, to publish his eulogies of Hitler and his defense of Nazism because they had just spent so many months covering the prosecution's case. Yeah. Um, the Soviet press is not going to have any of that on actually the most dramatic, you know, Goering day at the trial. The Soviet newspaper Pravda just like notes very succinctly that, that Goering offered the usual fascist propaganda. Right. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So, so for their home audience, they, they've got, they, that's easy, right? It's the, it's the, it's, it's the international press that they are much more worried about. I just want to remark, cause you underlined this in your notes. We've got the Soviets have made their argument. They weren't expecting um, the Germans to make one back. And you, you said um, that the Soviets never figure out cross-examination. They never figure out cross-examination. It's, um, it's painful, actually. And, and, and I'll just say, too, that when I started working on the book, I didn't think I was going to have several chapters about the defense case because I didn't know as much about the defense case. And then once I started to realize how much actually happened during the defense case, it was, it was surprising to me. It was kind of a revelation. And again, the cross-examination, time and time again, um, they, they, the defendants are just like blustering back at them and they don't know how to control them. And part of what I figured out from the archival documents about what's going on here is that the Western, so, so the Western prosecutors figure out how not to ask open-ended questions, right? Yeah. To, to kind of keep it. The Soviets, they have a script. They put together in advance a list of questions to ask each defendant. And actually they have the, the, the expected answers penciled in, right? As if they're expecting that this is the way it's going to go. And so they're really not prepared then to adapt or adjust on the fly. And, and they're scared to, too, because again, this is the other thing. That list of questions was approved by these secret commissions back in Moscow. And so the Soviets don't have the same kind of 
um, like just agility that the other delegations have to be able to make independent choices. All, everything they do has to be approved in Moscow. So there's constantly telegrams back and forth. And, and so that's, that's, I think, part of why um, it, it just goes continually downhill. So, so the perceptions of what's going on, um, you've mentioned that um, it, it's clear that the reporting is not happening perhaps as it should be um, back it's with the motherland, whereas we're getting... Oh, they, they think it's, they think it's exactly what it should be. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, and there's certainly far more transparency in the Western press. But for people who are taking an interest in what's going on, are they being served different kinds of propaganda? I mean, how are the Soviets struggling with propaganda at this point? Propaganda in general is a really interesting question because part of it gets to like, what is propaganda exactly, right? And yeah. even before the trial started, when they were working on the, in, in London and they were working on the details of the Nuremberg Charter, right? There, there's discussions about how to handle, like, because maybe there would be Nazi propaganda, right? And mm. so there were actually discussions about putting something in the charter Harder and banning it. And the Americans say, yeah, the Americans say, no, that's not, like, we shouldn't do that because that we just shouldn't do that. And they also think it's not going to be necessary that the judges are going to keep things in line, right? Yeah. And so, so that's again part of, part of the expectation. But then there are other kinds of issues. I mean, in December of 1945, the Associated Press runs all kinds of like quote unquote interviews with some of the, the big defendants, like, you know, Keitel and Gehring. And in these quote unquote interviews and the defense attorneys are acting as middlemen, right? They, they, they present whole defenses of themselves and Gehring praises Hitler and, um, and, and Keitel again puts out this argument about, you know, defensive or preventive war. And the Soviets are, are very upset about this. And the Soviets actually, you know, they, they complain about this to the Americans at Nuremberg and the Americans are like, well, that's just the press. Like we don't have any control over that. You know, that's how they're selling newspapers, that kind of a thing. But for the Soviets, again, they have, they don't have the same kind of free press, right? The press no. is an organ of the government and the party. And so for the Soviets, if, if the Associated Press is presenting things like that, they're assuming that the U.S. government has signed off on it mm, and is yeah. in on it. And so, so this becomes, again, you start to see Soviet American tensions, um, flare up at various points in time. But then it really starts coming back to punch the Soviets in the face, if you like, because like now the Germans want to talk about Kachin and they want to talk about things that the Soviets did to the Poles. And this is, like you say, this is, they were expecting to trot the Germans out and tell them off and make them pay. And they were not expecting to have to answer for their own actions at all, were they? So Kachin is, um, it's, it's one of the most important moments, right, yeah. at the Nuremberg Trials, I think. And Katyn, again, it's, I feel like this is different because now we're not really talking about propaganda anymore of the same kind, right? Yeah, because this is the, more like covering your ass, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because the Soviets, they perpetrated the yeah. Katyn massacre and they try to use the Nuremberg Trials to, to blame the Nazis for it, right? Mm-hmm. They they didn't have to bring Katyn into Nuremberg, but they did. And so just just in terms of thinking for your for for the listeners, right? That um, so the Katyn massacre, right? It was the murder of of thousands of Polish prisoners of war um, officers in the Katyn forest outside of Smolensk. And what happened during the war in April 1943? Radio Berlin announced the discovery of mass graves and blamed the Soviets. 
At the time, the Soviets countered that the Nazis had committed the crime, like after they had taken the region in 1941. And, and we now know definitively, right, the NKVD was responsible. Yeah. After the victory, the Soviets think, all right, we're going to just put this to bed now. The Nazis aren't going to be able to like, defend themselves against this anymore. And the Soviets consider initially actually having holding their own Katyn trial. But someone, and again, it's someone in the security apparatus, probably I'm sure Stalin signed off on it. We don't know the exact details, but someone decided that they're going to use the Nuremberg trials instead. And so the Soviets then pushed to include Katyn in the indictment under the listings as a German war crime. Now, again, I think like this, when I first... You're pushing your luck, aren't you? Yeah, well, what's that? You're pushing your luck, really, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, they're pushing their luck, totally. Test, you would not mention it and hope it didn't come up. You wouldn't right. listing right. it. Yeah, it seems, it seems reckless, like, yeah. really. Like, 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 why do this? But again, it goes back to how the Soviets are thinking of the trial. Like, they really think the victors are going to control the script, right? So, they really think that the defendants aren't going to be ha- able to have, like, the kind of defense that they end up having. And so, you know, those deliberations about the indictment about this are incredibly interesting because the Western prosecutors, they appeal to Rudenko to like, like just again, like, why push your luck pretty much? Yeah. They don't say it in those words, but, but like, let's just leave it alone. They say, you know, they understand it's been a political hot potato. They, they suspect the Soviet media are responsible, but like, why, why bring it into the whole thing? And Rudenko tells them that, you know, he has no choice. He can't budge. That And he says, if you know, it's this and there's some other things. And he says, well, if you don't sign on to this, I'm going to have to go back to Moscow and talk to Stalin about this in person. That's going to take a few weeks and it's going to hold things up. And so the Western powers are finally, uh, the prosecutors are finally like, okay, fine. And um, and this, I would say, ends up being um, one of Jackson's biggest regrets, mm-hmm. right? Because the day after the indictment is published, the day after the indictment is published, Jackson gets word from U.S. intelligence of new evidence that the Soviets are probably responsible. And at that point, it's too late, right? It's, it's in there. It's yeah. already into record at that it's already, it's already in there. And then so in the Soviet case in February, um, the Soviet deputy chief prosecutor, Yuri Pokrovsky, he presents Soviet evidence on Katyn and fabricated evidence, right? Yeah. The defense attorneys, and it's actually Gehring's attorney, um, asks to be able to call witnesses to rebut this. And the, again, the three Western judges overruling Nikachenko, they allow it. They allow it. They allow the defense to bring in three witnesses. They say the Soviets can bring in three witnesses too. There's kind of a showdown of witnesses yeah. in July. Um, and in the end, it's kind of, people think it's sort of a draw who did it. But um, Katina's not mentioned in the judgment. And so you know, for, for the Soviets, it's, it's sort of a loss. So, so we, what we have here is an event in, in which we are trying to surface the truth about what happened. And at the same time, the Soviets are trying to slip one in under the wire. So tell me, how did they handle the the secret pact they made with Germany in 39? Did they skim over it? Yeah, that, that's another one of those really big moments. But, but what I just want to say that what you say is, is absolutely the thing with, with both, with these kinds of things, you just, again, thinking like, like, why? Like, why? Like, why, um, why bring this in? 
But yeah, with the secret protocol. So again, the secret protocols to the Soviet German non-aggression pact of 1939, right? Sometimes called the Hitler Stalin pact. In those secret protocols, Stalin and Hitler basically agreed to carve up like Poland and other parts of Europe, of Eastern Europe into German and Soviet zones. And soon after, um, the Germans invade Poland and then the Soviets come into Poland too. And right. So that's pretty much what, what happens. And, um, and again, in terms of who knew what initially, no one bothered to tell right, Rudenko, as we saw, about the secret protocols. Mm. So initially, he starts these deliberations about the indictment, right, not knowing about them. And so the Soviets, actually, on this one, their strategy is going to be to not talk about it at all, just to try to avoid the issue altogether. You know, they assume that Rudenko just doesn't need to know. It's not going to come over it. Yeah, just, you know to know about this, not, you know, not, not going to be a thing, you know, but, you know, Ribbentrop, who co-signed it, he's one of the defendants. So it's another one of those moments of really, what are they thinking? How, how do they think this is going to go? And, um, and in November, oh, sorry, what, what, Alex? He's going to bring it up when he tries to defend himself, isn't he? Ribbentrop, oh, yeah. So, and, and it gets brought up even, even sooner that um, almost no sooner do the do they all get to Nuremberg and things are getting underway than actually Hans Frank's attorney Alfred Seidel, um, he says that that he tells the the tribunal that he's dug up some documents. About... And if I'm one of the Nazi defendants, I'm having T-shirts made so <laughs> I get to Nuremberg. You would, wouldn't you? You're going to want to scream from the rooftops. I had a secret pact with Russia. Yeah, yeah. That's what that's what Seidel tries to do, right? He try he brings it up in, into as many of, of his cross examinations of the defendants as he can, just kind of getting that information in there. Um, yeah, so they um, it, it it comes up, you know, in the end. So Seidel in the end says that he actually has a copy of the document, um, but he won't say where he got it from, and so the judges won't take that copy because there are questions about its origins, but it sort of doesn't matter because um, in Ribbentrop's defense, in um, it, it all, in a number of defenses, in Raiders' defense along the way, enough details about the secret protocols come up that pretty much you know everyone knows about it. I mean, Seidel is just, just determined, right, to to get this out as as much as he can, mm-hmm. and um, and so they actually get a copy. Um, to to the press, and so in in May, um, I think May twenty second, the copy of the secret protocols like appears in the American press, um, all the details. And and for the Soviets, again, this is um, even though it's been brought up in the courtroom again and again and again, they can still control how that information is brought back to the Soviet people. But yeah. now, once it's in the press, it's it's out in a way that's much harder to control. Well, I think the whole experience of Nuremberg. Um, it was insane, wasn't it? Yeah. So there is, um, especially for the Soviets who, um, were, were not expecting, um, what they found when they went to, when they went to Nuremberg, just in terms of the nightlife, in terms of the parties, in terms of the bars and just the food, the booze, right? All, all, all of it. And so, um, right. So, and I, I spent a lot of attention on this in the book because again, for me, what's happening outside of the courtroom, it's not just color, right? It's part of a way we need to really think about diplomatic 
relations in general, international relations, and what actually happens, that what's, what happens outside of the courtroom influences the relationship among the judges, it influences the relationships among the prosecutors, it, it influences all of it, right, in, in, in different kinds of ways. I mean, there are moments early on in those deliberations about the indictment in London where the Soviets actually got to London late, and I think that that affected them really negatively in the sense that the British and American and French prosecutors have all been hanging out together. They've been going to the races, the dog races at Hyde Park. They've been going to dinner parties together, right? They've, they've all been really getting to know each other, right? Um, um, yeah. And um, I should say, actually, they've been going to the dog races and taking trips to Hyde Park. Dog races were not. Yeah, I was going to say they're blatantly at Walthamstow or Wimbledon for the dog. Yes, no, so so clearly. But yes, there's a dog races, there's Hyde Park. As someone who was there on the last night before they closed it down, uh, what a night out. So much fun. Um, right, and, and probably a great place to, to talk about the details British of culture the game, at its right? finest, yeah. Take yes. On to the dogs. Um, we are, we've come to the point where we need to talk about what the outcome was and how the Soviets viewed it. Um, is it a success for them? Are they happy with the judgment at Nuremberg? No. Um, well, <laughs> they're, they're not. In a word, sure. no. Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, that again, it's important to think about why did the, going back to the war, right? Why did the Soviets want this tribunal? What did they want to get out of it? Right. They they wanted to um, to be able to tell a story about the suffering of the Soviet people. Right. And this, I would say, was successful in part because of the eyewitness testimony, um, again, on the crimes against humanity, charged mm-hmm. people like um, mm-hmm. Abraham Sutskever and others. So so that was successful. They also wanted to be able to to have this narrative of Soviet heroism right, of the Soviet saving yeah. the world and Katyn and the secret protocols. They, they got in the way there, right? I mean, they really sullied the image of the Soviets. The Soviets end up really being cast, um, in some ways more as co-conspirators of yeah. the Germans in some points of the trial. So that's a big fail. Um, also in terms of the verdicts, the, again, Stalin is expecting guilty verdicts and hangings, right? All the way down the line. And, and they, they do not, they do not get this at, at all. Um, Twelve of the defendants are sentenced to death by hanging. Um, three of them are acquitted. And then a bunch of others, including Hess and Speer, receive um, prison sentences. And for the Soviets, uh, so the Soviets are they're very upset about this at the end. They file a dissent that gets attached to the judgment um, because they see this as a travesty of justice that that should happen. The other thing that the Soviets want to get out of this fight from the start, of course, is also reparations. That's part of why they pushed for this tribunal to begin with. And interestingly, by the time even that the trials happen, reparations is detached from it. Some of the details of reparations are worked out of the Potsdam Conference. And so they continue on with Nuremberg, for these other goals. Um, in one way, though, I think um, we could talk about it as being a success because something else that the Soviets really wanted was a seat at the table, right? At the seat at the table uh, of international international relations. Um, and after Nuremberg, I mean, that, that does continue um, for, for all kinds of reasons. And it's, it's, I would say, something that comes out of Nuremberg as well. And, and the other thing that's come out of Nuremberg, I mean, we, we see it as the gold standard for international justice now, I think. I think that's, that's a, a reasonable way of framing it. And it offers a lot of meaningful lessons in how to approach that judicious um, system 
And it, gi it gives us some benchmarks we can reach back to as well, no matter how uncomfortable we feel. So as we're looking back now, and certainly in, in terms of putting your book together, were there um, archive materials that you were accessing that were unusual? I mean, we, we're all nerds here. We love being able to <laughs> dig into shoeboxes. Um, what kind of sources were you using in Moscow, elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for for hours, so I'll try yeah, to. And sure we could I listen for hours, and all the listeners. And this is—I I love talking about the archives, and I, I just—I love being in archives and, yeah. and everything. They're down the rabbit hole. Do you know what? I ordered a 1882-83 document, four-page document about suicides in the River Lee and bodies they fished out in London, um, just because it was interesting on ABE Books, and I've sniffed it about forty-five times because it reminds me of being. <laughs> I've been sniffing it all afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. I mean, I, that's great. I, I haven't been able to get back to the archives now because of the COVID, right? And so yeah. I'm, I'm, miss, I'm missing that, like that whole physical experience, right? Um, but yeah, I couldn't have written this book without the Moscow archives. I, I worked in, in five different archives and the, the foreign ministry archives, um, were very important in terms of the, the Molotov files and the Vyshinsky files. And again, being able to see secret telegrams that went back and forth between the Soviet delegation and, and Moscow, often via Berlin. Because again, since the Soviets were so dependent on these secret commissions signing off on everything they did, the paper trail right, for the yeah. historian, it's just incredible. Like, there's so much detail uh, that where they're laying out things and they're, they're getting instructions back. There are these marked up documents. Like, they sent back a copy of the indictment and we can see, like, Molotov's handwriting on it and Stalin's notes on it and, and how they should be addressing these different things. The judgment. This is, I, I love this. Um, they weren't, so the judges were supposed to be deliberating on the judgment and the sentencing in secret. And when you read these Western books about the trials, it's like they were in a room and it was locked and they burned the trash with the notes every night to make sure it's tasty. Well, Nikachenko manages to smuggle a copy of the judgment back to Moscow. And, um, yeah. And so I'm used to, so you see it in the archives, right? That's how you know. Yeah. And, um, and so you can, and again, see this document in the archives along with these drafts of instructions that are going to be sent back to Nikachenko about how to argue for the guilt of all of these different defendants. I mean, those kinds of documents are just like amazing. Um, but there's also things like the, like working in the, in the archive of, um, the Russian state archive of literature and art. And being able to see letters that the Soviet playwright Vsyevolod Vishnevsky wrote home because he was, in, in, he just, I mean, again, the things that he described too, like about the nightlife and about, um, vaudeville shows and acrobats, um, you know, in addition to what was going on in court, it just, it adds so much richness and Roman Carmen's writings about it. So, so all of that is amazing. And uh, the um, the Academy of Sciences archive is yeah. So I can again, I can go on and on. There's so there's so much. Um, I knew I wanted to work on this project when in the Russian State Archive I, they have like this big archival collection, like on the Nuremberg trials. And some of it is just um, what you would expect, like the official documents. But tucked in there was this long letter back from an informant talking about just like all of the terrible conditions, like how the living conditions were cramped and the furnace didn't work and how terrible it was that the female members of the Soviet delegation, they dressed so poorly that the Americans and the British were making fun of them. Um, so, so it's just stuff like that that gives you a sense, again, of, of it as 
so it's a real, like a real place um, where, where people experience things. So, so your book is going to put this into complete new context and help us to reframe how we think about Nuremberg far more accurately, isn't it? Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's certainly the goal. That's certainly yeah. the goal. I think, let's just end. I mean, the, you're selling the importance of the Soviet role in that, because as you say, it's been, um, it's been skewed to that we think of Nuremberg as a completely American, um, instigation but it's not it's significant because it's a four power tribunal and it's also significant in terms of evidence of the holocaust as well and these are all things that your book helps bring out aren't they yeah that's um yes so uh, again this the, the contribution to the soviets to the framing of the tribunal the contribution of that witness testimony and and absolutely the significance of a four power tribunal i don't think nuremberg um, in terms of thinking about, again, the, the international law consequences, I, I don't think that would have had that impact later had not the four countries been involved in it. And what's the book called? Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. Excellent. Snappy title. It will be uh, linked direct from the podcast episode because Matt has set up a bookshop for us, um, which means that not only does Francine get money and people buy her books, but History Hack gets a cut as well, which is genius. And I don't know why none of us phony to sort it out fran thank you so much for coming on this has been absolutely fascinating uh didn't know much about nuremberg at all definitely just assumed it was all american um so you fixed me anyway (laughs) (laughs) thank you for having me and for your excellent questions this was really fun join us tomorrow when we will be talking to jonathan clements all about the life of confucius uh i know who he is but i don't know anything about him it's gonna be really interesting so don't miss out on that one don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms we're revamping ourselves on both of them so don't forget to go in you can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year when our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book The 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history. Or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 